What is the most powerful part of the Python ecosystem? Well, the ability to say pip install magic library has to be right near the top. But what powers the Python package index and who are the people behind it? Did you know that they ship over 300 terabytes of traffic each month these days? Join me as we chat with Donald Stuffed to look inside Python's packaging infrastructure. This is Talk Python to Me, episode 64, recorded Wednesday, June 22nd, 2016. I'm a developer in many senses of the word because I make these applications, but I also use these verbs to make this music. I construct it line by line, just like when I'm coding another software design. In both cases, it's about design patterns. Anyone can get the job done. It's the execution that matters. I have many interests. Sometimes Welcome to Talk Python to Me, a weekly podcast on Python, the language, the libraries, the ecosystem, and the personalities. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Follow me on Twitter where I'm at mkennedy. Keep up with the show and listen to past episodes at TalkPython.fm and follow the show on Twitter via at TalkPython. This episode has been brought to you by SnapCI and Rollbar. Hey everyone, I have a really fabulous look inside the Python package index on deck for you. Donald and I just scratched the surface, but there are a ton of fascinating topics that we cover. Before we get to our talk with Donald, I have one announcement for you. I've released my second online course called Write Pythonic Code Like a Seasoned Developer. It's over four hours and 50 concrete examples of how you can write more Pythonic code. It's jam-packed with tips that you can incorporate into your projects immediately. Topics covered include the expansive use of dictionaries, hacking Python's memory usage via slots, using generators, comprehensions, and generate expressions, creating subsets of collections via slices all the way to the database, and much more. Several of these topics are Python 3-only features, so you'll have even more reason to adopt Python 3 for your next project. The response to the first two days has been super positive. I hope you'll take a moment to see what the course is all about at talkpython.fm slash pythonic. Now, let's get to Donald. Donald, welcome to the show. Yes, hi. Hey, thanks for coming today. It's going to be really fun to talk about packaging and PyPI and all these sorts of things. But of course, like always, before we get into the details, let's hear your story. How did you get started in programming in Python? Yeah, so... um Programming in general, I uh, was playing a video game back in high school on EverQuest, and I started to uh, get into hacking that video game, and there was a tool called MacroQuest that I started writing add-ons for and such, and it sort of got me involved in programming at all. And then I started to get jobs in programming. My first job was with PHP, and when I was working on Drupal, with Drupal at the time, I kept hearing about this cool framework called Django, but it was written in Python. So I picked up a Python book and uh, sort of taught myself Python over a week or so and so that I could then use Django to do websites instead of Drupal. So I was feeling constrained by the sort of CMS aspects of Drupal. Yeah, okay, that's that's cool. Drupal's PHP, right? Yes, yep. Drupal's a PHP uh, CMS that's sort of got some frameworky aspects to it, or at least it did back then. That was 2007 or so. I haven't really looked at it recently. Yeah, it's it's definitely still going. So, was it uh, refreshing to get into Python from PHP? Uh, yes, I you know I found Python to be you know incredibly concise and great to work with. I, I like the uh, enforced white space um, coming from. You know, somewhere where you know, PHP tends and particularly at the time, a lot of the examples you would find online didn't always have the greatest formatting. So 
uh, you know, that sort of enforced formatting helped a lot with me reading other people's code to figure out, you know, what they were doing and how it worked and, uh, sort of just a general grokking of the, the code bases to help me learn over time. Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. I'm sure it was, it was nice. So I think maybe a good place to start this conversation would be to talk about what you do for your day job. Yeah, so my day job is is uh, I'm employed by Hewlett Packard Enterprise, full time employee, and my sort of mandate is basically make Python packaging better. So from there, you know, I work on PyPI, um, I work on uh, PIP, I work on uh, a project called Warehouse, which is essentially PyPI 2.0. The warehouse name is not really going to be exposed to end users other than if they start to work on the back end, but. We call it warehouse just to distinguish it. Um, then there's other little small tools like Twine and you know sort of a lot of the uh, background efforts, you know, writing peps and coordinating things and and whatnot. Sort of all falls under my uh, banner of what I do for my day job. Yeah, so that's really awesome that HP is is making that investment to more or less fund a developer to continuously work on Python packaging. Uh, yeah, and you, you know, you know, I think it's great. You know, that they are a big contributor to the OpenStack community, and OpenStack is, I think, it's not entirely written in Python now, but it's largely written in Python. So they're heavy users of you know Python and PyPI and PIP and, and whatnot. You know, so HP felt that you know they're depending on these things. You know, it made sense to invest in these things to make sure that they continue to be running and work and, and whatnot. Yeah, that's cool. So is this a position that you somehow managed to create or was there like a, a job announcement hiring packaging support uh, so, person? <laughs> yeah, so it was created for me. At the time, there was uh, somebody, Monty Taylor, inside HPE who sort of led the effort to convince the higher-ups that this was something that they should do. And you know, he's the one who reached out to me. And offered this to me. You know, prior to this, I, I was working at Rackspace where they gave me half time, you know, fifty percent time to work on packaging, fifty percent time to work on their own projects. You know, so he sort of took that idea and just amped it up to the next level, and you know, we really pushed for getting that in done in HP and convinced me to come over. Yeah, that's oh, that's awesome. Uh, we'll I think we'll dig in a little bit more later on how companies are supporting PyPI and so on. But let's let's keep it high level for a little bit. So I, I've had a lot of interesting conversations with people basically around the, the pronunciation of PYPI. <laughs> and I've heard a lot of people say PyPI, and I've heard a fair uh, number yeah. of people say PyPI. What's the official way to say it? The official way to say it is PyPI. It's Python package index, so you know, you put the emphasis on the the pi pi. A lot of people do call it pi pi. Um, I've heard pippy and and pp and all sorts of uh, uh, pronunciations. Um, I really don't like the name. Uh, I think it's a confusing name that has this big sort of problem of pronunciation. Everyone pronounces it a little bit differently, and one of the most common pronunciations pi pi clashes with. PyPy as PYPY, the uh, alternative Python implementation. However, I've uh, sort of thus far been unsuccessful at convincing 
people that it's worth it to change um, the name since PYPI is so yeah. ingrained and everywhere across the the, the e- ecosystem. Yeah, it's it's deeply ingrained, but it's also an insider term, right? Like you can't walk up to somebody who's very barely familiar with Python and say PyPI and have them go, oh yeah, of course, right? There's, but you know that's true. I think with lots of the packaging systems, like if you said NPM to somebody, they wouldn't know. If you said gems, <laughs> they wouldn't know. You know, NuGet. Like there's all these packaging yeah. systems. They all seem to have poor names, but uh, <laughs> PyPI. Okay, that's great. Yeah. So I'm um, I'm glad glad to hear that I've been saying it right. But I've been following Guido's lead, and I figured that's a pretty safe lead to follow. Uh, yeah. Yep. And you know, PyPI is what it is. Although I do slip up every once in a while and pronounce it wrong. But yeah. Okay. Cool. So PyPI. One thing I always wondered about, maybe you can explain this for me. If I type pypi.python.org and hit enter, I get pypi.python.org slash pypi. Like why why does it appear on both ends? Is it just like really <laughs> beloved? There's a long history there. Um and I'm you know, I don't fully know it because a lot of it comes from before my time. But uh I believe PyPI was originally deployed under just python.org slash pypi. And then they eventually moved it to its own domain name as pypi.python.org. And they just kept the slash pypi because um, that prefix was baked into scripts and it was easier to just change the the domain name rather than changing the whole path. Uh, right. So it's just a compatibility thing. Yeah. And it was actually just recently we – I know that because we just recently, within the last year – broke compatibility for people who were still using python.org slash pypi and apparently there were still people who had scripts and uh one not pointing to that because when we broke that we got people yelling at, at us for it but, <laughs> you heard about it huh yes well that's the the quickest easiest way to tell if a service or a database or, or something like that is required is like turn it off and see if anyone screams right <laughs> Yes, and, and with uh, with PyPI, that's one of our uh, main ways we figure out what's needed or not because it's never been documented well what you can depend on in PyPI, and sort of the entire history of PyPI has been someone depended on something weird in it, some sort of implementation detail, and suddenly that became the API. So <laughs> a lot of things in PyPI are we have no idea what people are depending on, so we just change things and pray yeah so you step very lightly making changes i suspect yeah particularly on what we call legacy pypi which is what's running now because it's a very old code base it's like 15 years old or so and it's got no tests it doesn't run (laughs) locally very easily like yeah to actually run it locally you have to modify the code and comment things out to get it to start up yeah so this is so it's it's fun. Yeah, I'm sure this is really an interesting uh, experience and long, long-lived Python code. So maybe it's a good place to start uh, talking about the history. Like, PyPI is not as old as Python, right? And so there was a while where Python was just a thing. And there was no packaging, right? And then PyPI came along. What's the story there? So again, this predates me. So, so this is what my uh, understanding is from what people have told me. Is uh, and so 
Python did originally have no packaging story. So people started sort of making their own story with make files. Make files obviously are not super repeatable. So you had to write a whole new make file every time you switch to a different project. They don't run by default on Windows, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, someone whose name escapes me right now came up with distutils to replace all these make files with a Python script that will run everywhere and it will sort of do all that stuff for you, which, which at, at the time, great. It was, you know, a, a really big step forward for Python and packaging in general. And um, I think roughly around that same time, maybe a little bit after, um, there were several sort of efforts to create sort of a CPAN, but for Python, um, one name that I know of was Vaults of Parnassus. I don't fully know all the names or what their specific implementations were, but then uh, Richard Jones, I believe, came up with the idea of of a PyPI and sort of implemented a proof of concept of what PyPI could be, and they deployed it to Python.org, and we're still running that today. That proof of concept that was originally designed to be replaced quickly with the real thing. I'm always a little suspicious or leery of proof of concepts, showing them to people <laughs> who are like, oh, this is amazing. Let's use this. We don't even have to, we're almost done. Let's go, right? Yes. It can be a, a shifty, soft foundation, I suppose. Yes, and an important thing to realize about PyBI's code quality, it's not great. It was written fifteen, mostly 15 years ago with people hacking on it since then, and it predates much of what consists of the modern web stack. Django didn't exist. You know, Pyramid didn't exist. Flask didn't exist. I think Wizgy might have existed barely, or they were like contemporaries. You know, so the original PyPI didn't use Wizgy. It just sort of wrote its own uh, Python handler. I think it used CGI. So a lot of that code is still there. Um, and a lot of what we've done to try and semi-modernize it has been how do we hack in, you know, WSGI support into this thing that expects CGI? How do we deploy this? You're using a modern web server instead of, you know, this little script that just happens to sit inside the thing. Yeah, you know, so, you know, it's got a lot of Zope in it because it was big 15 years ago. Right, of course. Uh, you know, a lot of its problems really just stem from the fact, you know, it was written before we knew how to do good websites. Yeah, what year was that when it first, uh, when the prototype was created? I believe it was 2003. Okay. So there were some examples of serious web activity, serious websites, right? That's .com, just post .com days. But still, Python was not nearly as polished around the web story yeah. there, was it? Correct. Cool. Yeah, okay. So that's really interesting. So what's the relationship with easy install these days? Easy install lets you install packages. Pip lets us install packages. It's all pip these days, right? We, there, is there still a reason to use easy install? So easy install still exists. It does a few things that pip doesn't do. And pip largely doesn't do them on purpose. Um, like easy install supports uh, multi-version installs where you have a single Python environment and you can install multiple versions of, say, requests into that single Python environment. And then at runtime, it will generate a sys.path that has the correct version for whatever thing you're running um, on that sys.path. Pip doesn't do that. Uh, 
which I believe is a good thing Pip prefers to use. Is that because Pip really assumes the presence of virtual environments and it's like, if that's what you want, just create a virtual environment with a different version? Yes, correct. You know, you know, so, yeah, so, so Pip says use virtual environments, cre- create explicit environments, and install things in there. Easy install while it works with virtual environments because virtual, this is the way virtual environments work. Virtual environments, uh, or, or it sort of says you declare you know, in your script or in your script wrappers, you know, et cetera, what you depend on, and we will sort of create a dynamic virtual environment in memory by munging the sys.path, whereas virtual ends are you create an explicit named environment, a name by your file system path, and then you know pip will install things flat, you know, you know, just a single version into that environment. That's a cool feature that you could hack it together that way multiple versions, but it seems like it's almost more trouble than it's worth. Yeah, so it, it, it's certainly an interesting feature. I don't think one is necessarily better than the other. They each have their own you know, trade-offs. Um, we've sort of settled around using as a virtual env, um, you know, single flat install system, and I don't think there's enough of a reason to go back to the easy install sort of multi-version install system. Um, just because, you know, I think everyone sort of figured out how to use a virtual environment. And, uh, you know, I think trying to change gears now would just be a big disruption for not a whole lot of benefit. But if we had never done that, I think we would be in a perfectly fine place now. We just have a different mechanism for doing things. Okay, cool. So what's the relationship between the Python Packaging Authority and the Python Software Foundation? Yeah, so... Uh, the PyPA is sort of not a real thing, sort of is a real thing. Um, you know, it's not an official or- organization. We don't have a, a 5013C uh, or whatever they're called. So Python Packaging Authority is like a, a shadow organization pulling the strings yes. of Python Packaging. Yeah, sort of. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you can think of it that way. You know, it, you know, it sort of came around because PIP need, was putting itself on... Uh, GitHub, and they needed an organization name, so they just kind of jokingly called it PyPI, or PyPA. I have too many things in my head. Let's go PYP something. <laughs> I confuse them. Yeah, so they sort of jokingly called it PyPA, and then as we sort of, this sort of push in the past couple of years to really standardize around these things and fix things and get move forward, we just sort of started to take that name and say, okay, we're going to really take this name that started out as a sort of joke and we're going to use this for a real thing. It's sort of just an umbrella or an organization where it's like, okay, you're working on something that's packaging in Python. You can bring your project in the PyPA. We don't have very many rules. I think the only rule we really have is that you have to, your project has to be governed by our code of conduct. And beyond that, you know, you can run your project however you want, use whatever VCS you want, et cetera, et cetera. But it sort of provides a central location for someone who's, okay, I want to work on packaging stuff. You know, go to the PyPA, you know, pages. You know, you can see the list of projects, and then you know, since there's a lot of cross pollination between people who work on these projects, kind of makes managing permissions and stuff a bit easier. But like funding, uh, we're starting to try and get um, funding and stuff available for that. So that's largely going through the PSF. You know, so, so the PSF is sort of the legal entity that we that we hang our stuff off of, but the PyPA is sort of. You know, just our little unofficial organization. You can think of it similar to Python Dev, how Python Dev manages C Python, but you know the, the the legal trademarks and stuff sort of hang off of 
the, the PSF. Right. Okay. So since the packaging authority is just a like a loose group of people uh, who work together on packaging, there's no legal component there. Like for example, I'm I made a donation to PyPI when you guys announced like, hey, we need some supporters and whatnot. Small one, but still, to do that, I actually went to through the PSF website. And I sort of donated yes. it to them, and then they forward it on, right? So for things like that, where you need yeah. an entity, PSF is kind of there to support you. Yeah, exactly. It frees us up from having to deal with, you know, getting the aid board of directors and dealing with the, the mundane legalities. PSF already does that. And and uh, I believe they call it fiscal sponsorship or something along that lines. But, you know, it's basically, you know, they manage being the, the legal entity behind this stuff. And we manage actually doing the, uh, you know, the code work and, you know, the roadmaps about how this is going to go forward and, and, you know, making those sort of decisions. SnapCI is a continuous delivery tool from ThoughtWorks that lets you reliably test and deploy your code through multi-stage pipelines in the cloud without the hassle of managing hardware. Automate and visualize your deployments with ease and make pushing to production an effortless item on your to-do list. Snap also supports Docker and in-browser debugging, and they integrate with AWS and Heroku. Thanks, SnapCI, for sponsoring this episode by trying them with no obligation for 30 days by going to snap.ci slash talkpython. So I, I kind of want to focus on three themes around PyPI. One is looking inside the infrastructure and the traffic and all that. One is about this new version you called Warehouse, and then also like the funding and support and, and that kind of thing. So let's start, start with the traffic and infrastructure. You wrote a cool blog post called Powering the Python Package Index. In there, you really laid out a lot of the underlying technology. You talked about some of the bandwidth requirements. Like, I felt like I had bandwidth requirements <laughs> until I saw what you guys are doing, like... Uh, you had um, a comment where you said we had uh, 293 terabytes of traffic serving 3 billion requests in April, for example. <laughs> Can you yes. want to talk a little bit about that? I mean, that's pretty darn impressive. Like, you know, you got to go talk into the video places, the, the Vimeos, the YouTubes, and the Netflixes to get more traffic than that or more bandwidth of that in, in some sense, right? Uh, yeah, you know, and, and I mean, the vast bulk of that bandwidth is taken up by the package files themselves, although a not insignificant amount of that is taken up by API requests and stuff. I was actually curious. Um, I, I, look, I looked at May's numbers, and May's numbers are 343 terabytes and, you know, 3 billion and change uh, HTTP requests again. That's really amazing. And so... It sounds like May had, I don't know, what is that, like 10% more traffic in terms of bandwidth than it, uh, yeah, something it, did, like in, that. it did in April. So does that mean, how do you interpret it? Does that mean that we have more popularity, of Py, like the popularity and usage of Python is growing? Or does that mean people are spinning up more little tiny VMs and 
pip install requirements.txt more often? Like, is this a, a use case variation or is this a adoption variation, you think, as these numbers are going up? Yeah, so I actually don't have a whole a lot of insight into exactly what it is. Um, you know, it's something that I've tried to get some insight into, but it, it's uh, kind of hard. I will say one thing is that uh, as of PIP6, which was released in, I want to say, the end of 2014, I think. Don't quote me on that, though. PIP sort of aggressively caches um, locally. So you type pip install requests and you get request version you know 3.0 or 2.0 or whatever. It only downloads that file once per computer, basically. It uses HTTP caching. We have a 10-year-long cache headers on those. So it's basically once per 10 years per file. It's basically yes. once per machine, right? Like <laughs> probably the machine yeah, goes away before the cache does. Yeah, you, you know, it, unless you blow away the cache or, or, or something along that lines. So we're definitely, I believe, not seeing increase in uh, people doing pip install on their own machine multiple times. Or rather, shouldn't say we're not seeing increase. We don't know if that's increasing or not. Because they download once and then we never see that download again from them, no matter how many. T- right, it's probably not reflected in those numbers. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, so this is going to be, you know, either new users or new machines. You know, cloud machines. You know, I, I think probably more people switching to cloud-based workflows. You know, have an impact on this. You know, because Docker. Each time you bring up bring up a new cloud, you know, Docker containers. Yes. Each time you bring up a new Docker container or a new cloud, you know you start with a fresh cache that downloads again. I think people are doing CI more, and particularly things like Travis and such, unless you go out of your way to cache things um, between runs. Travis is going to give you a brand new cache each time. You know, so I think a lot of it is things like that. Yeah, I use SnapCI, and every time I check in something, it definitely pip installs a bunch of stuff. I'm not sure if it has the cache populated before that or not. But yeah, it, you're right. Every every check-in in some sense triggers that kind of behavior. Yeah. You know, and plus I do think we are, I don't know if Python itself has grown in usage, but I think PIP is particularly since there's been a lot more push from the, the, the Python doc side and things to say, hey, you know, here's a thing that, that you can use to download other packages. I think particularly for Python 2.6 and 2.7, they're getting kind of long in the tooth and people are wanting some of the new features from Python 3 without actually switching to Python 3. So they're, you know, they're installing backports and stuff or they're reaching out for things that aren't included in the standard library as much more than they used to be. Um, you know, I also think there's a previously PyPI wasn't very uh, reliable. Um, you know, it went down fairly regularly, sometimes even in the middle of file downloads and sort of in the past, three to five years, I believe it's gotten to a point where you can pip install something and be pretty uh, confident you're going to download something and install it. So I think just usability overall has made people more willing to use PyPI than they were in the past. Yeah, and kudos to you guys for that, right? Uh, Yeah, although, uh, I mean, I will admit a vast amount of that has been Fastly. I, I say Fastly is our secret scaling sauce because... You know, we we really would not be able to do near the amount amount of traffic with the the skeleton crew we we have without offloading a lot of that to the CDN. Right, you guys don't have like a massive data center 
in no. San Antonio or something that's like in a bunker that you manage. You're pushing this to the cloud like all the modern companies, right? Yep, yep. And we actually have a see, PyPI legacy runs. We have three web nodes for all of that. Um, and we have a Heroku database server. And uh, you know, we store our files in S3. And that's really about it for, for, for the infrastructure for PyPI itself. Okay, excellent. And can you give us a sense of what it costs to run PyPI? Uh, yeah, so for us, the cost is zero. But besides the people's time, but like, <laughs> right, of course. Yeah. yeah, yeah, because we are lucky to have all, all these uh, companies donate services. You know, uh, I think I clocked it at we're somewhere around $35,000 a month. You know, some of those numbers are, are, are a little fuzzy because, like, Fastly, the billing numbers we have are for all of our use of Fastly in Python. Right, but you probably represent the ma- the vast the vast majority yes. of traffic yeah, is you. Yeah, yeah. Well, like, in May, we said we have 340-some terabytes for PyPI. For Fastly in general, we had 399 terabytes. You know, and our, so, like, our Fastly bill in May was $33,000. You know, we have six thousand some dollars in rack space for for all for all of Python. And then we have you know DNS and, and such there. So so not counting people time. You know, we're roughly thirty five thousand, maybe a little bit more a month for just PyPI. Okay, this is not something that you could just run if you wanted to, right? This this takes the support of the community and, and companies like HP that are really backing it and, and fast. Oh, absolutely. Because yes, there's I, no absolutely. there's no person that's going to go. You know, I really believe in this project. So here's thirty five thousand dollars a month to pay for bandwidth. Uh, yeah, you know, I mean, I, I guess there could be people. <laughs> maybe, maybe you can find you know Bill Gates or someone convince him to do it. That's almost four hundred thousand dollars a year. That's yeah, you know, it's more than most people make. But be, outside that, yeah, let's talk about uh, the people involved. So we know that HP is basically supporting you to do what needs to be done for Python packaging, mostly around PyPI, but in, in the general sense. How many people work on these projects? And how many people would you um, say are responsible for keeping keeping pip install a thing a possibility? Ernest Durbin um, helps a lot with uh, PyPI itself. Um, he is not paid for that. Uh, so he's completely volunteer. You know, you know, he he's sort of the ops side of things. I do a little bit of ops. I'm not great at at it. So he does a lot of the operation stuff and is you know super helpful with that. You know, Richard Jones does things on a volunteer basis. Also, he's largely stepped back lately, um, just because his time has been taken up by other things. But he still comes around and helps with support requests and stuff, um, which I don't have the time to do. You know, then we start getting you know, like uh, setup tools what you need for pip install to do uh, uh, source disks. Um, you know, that's largely uh, Jason uh, Combs, uh, Jericho. That's largely his baby now. You know, then you start talking about pip, you know, you know, I'm there as well. You know, there's like uh, Paul Moore and uh, uh, Marcus is there and a few other people, you know, but, you know, their time is all limited based on because they're doing it in their Spare time, uh, which I do in my spare time as well, on top of the HP time. Um, but most people outside of myself have uh, a lot more limitations to the time they can spend on it, just because they're completely volunteer based. Yeah. So 
just a handful of people full time. Oh yeah. And yeah. everyone else is just a little here and a little there as they can. Yep. Do you feel like PyPI is underfunded? Uh, yeah, I, you know, I do believe PyPI is underfunded. You know, it's sort of a uh, tragedy of, of the commons. You know, it's used by a lot of people, you know, as evidenced by our traffic numbers. Matter someone's using it a, a, a lot. While we do get support from, you know, a, a number of companies, you know, realistically, I forget the exact number off the top of my head, but we're less than 10 companies who support us. And I'm pretty sure more than they use PyPI. They could be just installing a lot of stuff. Now, of course, there's, I mean, everybody uses it. It's absolutely one of the foundational things, right? It, it is the thing that facilitates batteries included in the yes. most broad sense of Python, right? Yeah, yeah. You, you know, you know, I absolutely believe so. You know, I think, you know, it's uh, one of the most important things, if not the most important things provided by the PSS infrastructure. It's debatable with W, you know, HG or HG instance and stuff, but I think it's one of the most important things that, you know, the PSS infrastructure does provide, you know, and certainly uh, when it goes down, people are very quick to notice that, you know, they, I get notifications through Twitter and email and IRC before our monitoring even <laughs> notices it's down. People are telling me it's down. A lot of people depend on it. Is it stressful to you to be responsible um, for it? So there's definitely stress. Over the years, I've gotten better at dealing with it. You know, a lot of people, it's one of those things where, you know, when it's working, people don't think about it. And when it's uh, not working, they're out in droves to tell you it's not working. Um, you know, and I've never actually been technically on call for PyPI. Ernest has been, uh, Noah Kanchowitz has been, been technically on call, but I say, you know, it's, uh, basically impossible for me to not be on call unless I completely plug, unplug myself from the internet. You have to go into the forest and, and not basically. look for sky riding airplanes. <laughs> PyPI is yeah, down. because, you know. I, I'm so publicly known and associated with PyPI that, you know, people are reaching out to me as soon as it's down. And to their credit, they're mostly trying to be helpful to let me know it's down. But, you know, so it becomes a flood of communication anytime it suffers serious downtime. Now, we've yeah. sort of engineered it so that PIP install very, very rarely goes down. But uploads and stuff uh, kind of go down more often than that. But that affects a much smaller percentage of people. So that doesn't get as bad. Absolutely. I'm really excited to tell you about a new sponsor of the show, Rollbar. One of the frustrating things about being a developer is dealing with errors, Ugh. relying on users to report errors, digging through log files trying to debug issues, or a million alerts just flooding your inbox and ruining your day. With Rollbar's full-stack error monitoring, you get the context, insights, and control you need to find and fix bugs faster. It's easy to install. Start tracking production errors and deployments in eight minutes or less. Rollbar works with all the major languages and framework, including the Python ones, Django, Flask, Pyramid, as well as Ruby, JavaScript, Node, iOS, and Android. 
you can integrate Rollbar into your existing workflow, send error alerts to Slack or HipChat, or automatically create new issues in Jira, Pivotal Tracker, and lots more. We have a special offer for TalkPython listeners. Visit rollbar.com slash TalkPython and get the bootstrap plan for free for 90 days. That's 300,000 errors tracked for free. But hey, just between you and me, I really hope you don't need that many errors. Rollbar is loved by developers at awesome companies like Heroku, Twilio, Kayak, Instacart, Zendesk, Twitch, and more. Give them a try today. Go to rollbar.com slash TalkPython to me. If we had more people working on it and more people whose time was more seriously dedicated to it, like yours is, we could probably do some amazing stuff, right? So there's a way to donate to this. You guys actually have a donate.pypi.io as like the landing domain, I guess you would call it because it redirects. But that allows people to donate. Like how if people are working for a company and they're like, yeah, our whole company does $100 million of revenue, depends upon this thing, and we've actually not even helped support it. Maybe we should. Like, How would they get involved? Maybe those would be the biggest bang for the bucks if, if we could get some big companies to step up. Yeah, so obviously they can donate. If that's the way that they want to get involved, donations are easy, and tax, they're a tax write-off in the U.S. But if they want to you know, get you know, donate uh, developer time, one of the easiest things to do would be to contribute to warehouse which is on github at github.com slash pypa slash warehouse that is deployed now to pypi.io that's where it's going to live in the future and uh you know my big push right now is trying to get warehouse to the point where we can say okay this is ready enough let's start directing people here by default because pypi is sort of an old code base it's slowly falling apart uploads we get a sort of a base 10 percent error rate on uploads right now you know it's just falling apart and sort of a full-time job to keep it from not falling apart which doesn't give us me any time to uh, work on other things so i've sort yeah, of all your fingers <laughs> plugging holes in the dam rather than like building the yeah, dam. So yeah yeah so i've sort of ignored some of the holes um, willfully to try and free up time to get warehouse ready to launch because you know, the idea is that hopefully Warehouse will you know, get slotted into place and a lot of things will be better. I'm sure it's going to break things for a lot of people. But it will become more joyous to work on and maybe you'll get more contributors using stuff that people understand, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Like PyPI Legacy is largely two files, both over 4,000 lines long. And I think I'm the only person left that actually understands it. <laughs> uh, Richard hasn't touched it recently enough and enough things have changed that you know, he, he would have to get ramped back up. And so far, I've personally had a 100% failure rate on getting new people involved in that just because they take one look at the code and then it just kind of did disappear. It's not a fun code base to work on. You know, you know, it's particularly because you can't really run it locally. So a lot right. of times changes are make a change push it to production, maybe to test PyPI, which is a sort of a staging slash sandbox instance we have, depending on what the exact problem is, and then just sort of pray and hope the sentry doesn't start yelling at us. <laughs> yep. All right, so I warehouse is a huge topic that people are interested in, and I want to get to that. But before we move off this topic, you also wrote another blog post called 
a year of PyPI downloads. And there was a lot of insight that could be gleaned from those numbers. Can you talk about that really quick? Uh, yeah. So in so sort of in general, in January of 2014, we started saving and archiving all of our download logs. In 2014 and again in 2015, I believe it was, I sort of pulled those all down and crunched some numbers on those and pulled out some what I thought were interesting numbers largely around, you know, what versions of Python are being used, you know, what versions of packaging tools are being used, things like that. And those blog posts were sort of very widely received. So what I've done in the meantime since then is um, I've sort of improved our metric stream to the point where now every single download uh, generates a row in a big query database and you know which has got all sorts of information like you know what version of Python downloaded it, you know what toll downloaded it, uh, what country it came from, stuff like that. And as of I want to say a month ago, that data is now completely public for anyone to go and query as long as they have a Google account. Oh, nice. Yeah, give me the link to where that is and I'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, so I'm not really that great at data visualization or pulling information from data. Um, you know, I tried to do my best with with my year of PyPI downloads posts. Um, but I'm hoping that by making that completely public, A, people can do can make data-driven decisions about what versions of Python they support because you can very easily, using an SQL-esque language, say what versions of Python are downloading X package over some period of time. You know, I'm hoping that people who are actually good at data visualization and pulling meaning from data can take a look at it and come up with some interesting information, particularly maybe as it relates to you know, correlating that with you know GitHub data or Bitbucket data or you know, some other kind of, of data. Yeah, that, that sounds really cool. And if you give me a link to uh, the details, I'll be sure to put it in the show notes. Yep, yep. It, it's not greatly documented right now. It's just basically a, a post to Disutil SIG um, telling people about it. The historical data is not in there yet. You, you know, so that data starts, uh, I want to say, March-ish, sometime late March. That data starts, I'm backfilling from January of 2016 right now. And then I have to backfill back beyond that. But that takes a bit more effort because the logs aren't in the correct format. So I have to come up with something to munge those logs into the the new correct format. Yeah, okay. Well, that sounds really promising. And, you know, there's a lot of data scientists and data visualization professionals that listen to my show. And when I put data out, they, they seem to do amazing stuff with it in surprisingly short amount of time. So maybe maybe someone will come up with something cool for that. Let's talk about Warehouse because that's a really interesting project. And I sent some messages out on Twitter and said, hey, what should I ask Donald while we're talking? And everybody came back with some variation of talking about Warehouse. So Warehouse can be found at pypi.io. What is it? Yeah, so pypi.io is the production-ish um, I say ish because we're not monitoring it or or anything. Deployment of Warehouse, which is PyPI 2.0, it is backed by the same PostgreSQL database, the same uh, you know, S3 instance, etc. So and anything that changes on PyPI changes on Warehouse, and the reverse is true. Right. So they're watching the same data stores. It's more the front end and API implementation, right? Correct. 
you know, so right now the read only portions of it, which is 90 some percent of our traffic are pretty much done. There are a few, if you go through the UI, you'll see a few to do stuff that we have to either finish or comment out before we make it official. A lot of the author UI stuff is not done yet. Okay. The client side, the, the read only UI bit is really nice. It looks, you know, I feel like I'm going from uh, SourceForge to GitHub equivalent of experience. It's it's much better than current story. So I think that's going to be delightful. That's cool. Yeah, yeah, and you know, you know, I think that that was Nicole Harris has done the design for that. You know, which I think she's done a phenomenal job on that so far. You know, you know, I particularly going from what we had to what this is, you know, it really does feel like you're jumping forward an era or two, you know, you know, as far as what modern design looks like. Oh yeah, absolutely. No, I was just saying, and you know, we, she's uh, put a big focus on, you know, you're trying to get the usability of PyPI to be a whole lot nicer and better to use, you know, and surfacing the information people care about and, you know, hiding information that people really don't care about or maybe omitting it completely if it's, you know, just confusing information or information that nobody really needs to know. Yeah. Nice. So can you talk a little bit about what frameworks and internals use to create it? Uh, yeah. So uh, warehouse is written in pyramid. Uh, now it is it, uh, warehouse has got sort of a sorted history where I've gone from, I started out using just WorkZig and making my own framework to then it went to flask to then it went to Django. Now I finally set, settled on pyramid. Um, why why do you make those changes? Like what kept moving you along? Yeah, so one of the things I wanted to do with Warehouse was to 100% test test coverage across the board. You know, coming from with PyPI where um you know we had zero test coverage, one of the things that was very painful to me to make any change was, you know, figuring out what the impact was going to be, where I'm going to break code that I thought was unrelated but was really related. So I really wanted to make sure we had great test coverage. Unfortunately, a lot of the web frameworks out there tend to use a fair amount of globals. There's some argument about whether threat locals are technically globals or not, but I call them globals too. I think they're globals. You know, and uh, you know that makes it more difficult to test things. You know, so I originally created my own framework on top of WorkZig that was heavily influenced by uh, Gary Bernhardt's Boundaries talk where there was very few um, of these sort of bag of items. There wasn't a user class that had well, that was a data model and it had you know all these sorts of things you could do to a user hanging off of it. So that makes it hard to test because you have to pass through a huge interface. It's sort of like a miniature global. You kind of have to pass through this huge interface and actually test things. You have to provide an object, implements all those things, or else you know your tests are not actually really testing things. And uh, so we didn't have a, a, a ORM. You know, it was using SQL Alchemy's expression layer to some degree. It was also using just uh, raw SQL in some places. And um, one of the things that we that I discovered doing that was a I was reinventing a lot of things, which while fun, wasn't necessarily the best use of my time. You know, two, it, it came, brought us back to the same problem we had with PyPI where other people found it hard to contribute to it because it was using something that, while it fit my headspace quite well, it didn't necessarily fit other people's headspaces. 
and um, you know, three. Right. Nobody had experience with it, right? Yeah, and you know, and three. It uh, a lot of decisions were bottlenecked on me because it was well, how how do we do X thing in this completely custom framework? Well, nobody knows except Donald because Donald has to invent it. And so a lot of things were bottlenecked on me. So you know, me and Richard sort of talked about it. And we decided you know we need to move to something more standard. And I can't recall exactly if it was Flask or Django that came first. I know it was ported to Flask, and I wasn't really too fond of that because. One of Flask's big API things is thread locals as part of the API. And my experience with that is it becomes hard to then do anything in Flask without adding increasingly amount, increasing amounts of thread locals. And uh, so I kind of mixed that because I just didn't like the thread locals. Went to Django, and Django is a great code base. I'm, you know, I've used Django a lot. I just started with Django. Um, I started porting it to that, and... I discovered that the Django ORM is not really powerful enough to handle all of the things that PyPay does in its database that it's sort of accumulated over time. We have, you know, we have tables with composite keys, we have composite foreign keys, we have tables without any primary keys. You know, we have, you know, you know, a number of things. And uh, you know, I did get the user things ported over to Django. Then I just sort of gave up and said, you know, this is too much work to actually get this. To slot it into the the shape that Django wants it to be in, I said I'm going to just have to use SQL Alchemy for this, which is another great ORM. But then once you sort of throw away the Django ORM, you lose a lot of the power of Django. And I also wasn't using the Django template language because prior to all of this happening, I worked on a sort of another alternative front end to PyPI called Crate.io back before I was a PyPI administrator which was written in Django, and I used the Django templating language in that, and that became a bottleneck because of how big some of our HTML pages were to list all the packages. That became a serious bottleneck. So then we're sitting there, so we use Jinja uh, too. So then, so then I'm sitting there looking, okay, well, we have Django. It's kind of hard to fit our database into Django's ORM, so we can't use that. The DTL was too slow at, at the time. I don't know if it is now. To really use that, so we've sort of pared Django down to a glorified request router, and we've thrown away a lot of the power of Django. You know, there's no third-party apps, there's no admin. So then I took a look at Pyramid, and Pyramid had a lot of the things I liked about Django. There was really no thread locals. There is a thread local, but it's optional whether you use it or not. And uh, you know, it had enough flexibility in it to sort of use whatever tools we wanted to. So I could bring in SQL Alchemy and use that. I could bring in, you know, sort of change things around to sort of suit my purposes better than I could with Django. Now, the flip side of that is it doesn't do as much out of the box. You have to kind of configure it and make it do what you want to do. But, you know, given the long history of PyPI and all the sorts of little weird things that's grown over time, that fit a lot nicer to what we needed to do than sort of Django does because... While Django is great, once you sort of get out of the Django workflow, you start fighting in the framework a lot more than you do with Pyramid. Yeah, okay. That kind of makes sense to me. The The testing part with Flask, that I didn't know about, but I, I can imagine the stuff with Django. You know, I think you and I settled on for very different projects, the same technology stack more or less, but for all my web properties, I'm using SQL Alchemy and Pyramid and whatnot. So, yeah, very interesting. 
Let's see. We have just a few minutes left, and I have a, a couple of questions from the listeners, and then maybe one more thing I wanted to to make sure we touch on. Mahmoud Hashemi, who's also been a guest on the show, asks if uh, real-time download counters are coming back. Uh, yeah, they are. So the old metric stack sort of fell apart and died because it was sort of hacked onto the side of PyPI, like a lot of what PyPI does has been. The new metric stack, which is based around BigQuery and, and such, is sort of designed to allow us to bring that back as long as well as give us this sort of archival ability to query all sorts of things. I disabled them just because they were zero all the time because the thing had broken and I hadn't, didn't have time to fix it. Um, but we are <laughs> planning on, on, on bringing those back uh, and hopefully they'll actually work this time and it'd be nice. Yeah, would they reappear in the warehouse time frame or would you bring them back to the legacy version? It'll probably be in the warehouse time frame. Might not be until after launch of warehouse unless someone feels like coming around and figuring out how to do all that beforehand. Um, I'm new to BigQuery so far. I really enjoy using it. It seems to work really great. But uh, one of its constraints is that queries can take a, uh, you know, a couple seconds to a minute or two to run, which is fine if you're just looking at it for data archival. Not great to do in the middle of a request response <laughs> cycle. Yeah, that's for sure. So we need to do some work around figuring out, okay, how do we take this data that's in BigQuery and put it in a format that we can look at in warehouse in the request response cycle and then just take some someone to sit down and figure that you know figure that out. I just haven't had the time to do that. Sure. So final thing on warehouse. Nicola Kentar asks, what's the time frame for shipping that? So I've given a few dates before and we've passed them all so far. Not historically have been great at estimating how long until it's ready to go. I think we're pretty close though. You know, I've started I just recently told people on Distrital SIG to start switching their uploads to using warehouse, largely because we have a ten percent uh, standard failure rate on uploads to, to legacy. So far, everyone who's done that has said it's worked great. We just recently committed to Twine, which is a tool to replace setup.py upload. We switched in the master branch the default to using warehouse that's not been released yet, but um, I'm hoping that that'll be released in the next couple weeks. And if that works out great, hopefully we will get CPython itself switched to the you know, warehouse for uploads. And, uh, you know, then that will hopefully propagate out and people will use that and that will solve a big problem. Um, as far as switching the actual, you know, like redirecting the old domain, I think it's soon. I don't have a good target for exactly when, but um, hopefully I'm really, really, really hoping it'll at least be in 2016 because I'm tired of, of the old code base. I, I wanted to died a thousand deaths yeah i can i can imagine that sounds like a really cool new version and it, and it sounds like it's going to be great for everybody when it's working and it's the, the default certainly my playing around with it you know it, it seems like a nice place to be so i have a bunch of other questions i'd love to talk to you about and but we're just running out of time so maybe Maybe we'll have to leave it there. Uh, maybe when you guys do ship it, when when it flips, maybe we can come back and do some kind of celebratory show. Sure. To celebrate the actual flipping flip of the DNS or the redirect. Cool. So a couple of questions I always ask people before they 
end at the end of the show is, and I think this question is particularly interesting to you given your relationship, but I ask this to all my guests, is, you know, there are over 80,000 packages on PyPI these days. And like we talked about, there's so many amazing little packages people can grab and, and make their programs awesome. Like what one do you think is amazing you like to call attention to that's maybe not requests that everybody knows, you know, something like that? Yeah, um, I would have to say BPython. It's sort of an alternative uh, REPL for Python. It's got the, you know, syntax highlighting. You know, it's got uh, autocomplete as you, you know, type things out. It really works well and I install it on all my virtual M's because it just works a lot nicer than the, the building one. I think I, I use it a lot. Okay. That's awesome. And when you write Python code, what editor do you, do you use? Uh, so lately I've been using Atom and trying it out for the past two or three months. So far I've liked it. Uh, you know, previously I was using sublime text theory. Lately it's been Atom. Okay, cool. Yeah. It seems like sublime and Atom are, working at the same level, they have kind of a similar, they appeal to a similar group of people. That's, that's cool. All right. Any final call to action while you've got the mic? Uh, yeah. You know, I just, you know, I would love it if anyone who uses PyPI could come and you know, contribute to that or to PIP or, you know, talk to your companies, see about contributing some developer resources or even just some money. Anything helps. And, uh, you know, you know, hopefully we can keep moving things forward and, everyone will be happy and stop yelling at me when things go down. <laughs> that would be amazing. I just want to second that as well. Like, Try to convince your companies, if they depend heavily on Python, to contribute just a little bit. Because imagine a world where pip install basically didn't work. You had to go piece that all back together. That That's something we don't want to see happen, and it would be really great if we could make it a much more stable, supported, active thing instead of putting all the weight on you, Donald. And the few yes. other guys that we mentioned, right? Yep. And and re- remember, donations are uh, tax deductible in the U.S. Awesome. So there's just so many more things we could talk about, but we're going to have to leave it here just for the sake of time. So Donald, thanks for being on the show. It was great to talk to you. Yep. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Bye-bye. This has been another episode of Talk Python to Me. Today's guest was Donald Stuffed, and this episode has been sponsored by SnapCI and Rollbar. Thank you both for supporting the show. SnapCI is modern, continuous integration and delivery. Build, test, and deploy your code directly from GitHub, all in your browser with debugging, Docker, and parallelism included. Try them for free at snap.ci slash talkpython. Rollbar takes the pain out of errors. They give you the context and insight you need to quickly locate errors that might have otherwise gone unnoticed until your users complain to you, of course. As TalkPython to me listeners, you can track a ridiculous number of errors for free. Just go to rollbar.com slash talkpython to me to get started. Are you or a colleague trying to learn Python? Have you tried books and videos that left you bored by just covering topics point by point? Well, check out my online course, Python Jumpstart by Building 10 Apps at talkpython.fm course to experience a more engaging way to learn Python. You can find the links from this episode at talkpython.fm episodes slash show slash 64. Be sure to subscribe to the show. Open your favorite podcatcher and search for Python. We should be right at the top. You can also find the iTunes feed at slash iTunes. Google Play feed at slash play and direct RSS feed at slash RSS on talkpython.fm. Our theme music is Developers, Developers, Developers by Corey Smith, who goes by Smix. You can hear the entire song at talkpython.fm slash music. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Thanks so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Smix, let's get out of here.
Stating with my voice, there's no norm that I can feel within. Haven't been sleeping, I've been using lots of rest. I'll pass the mic back to who rocked it best.